Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool because you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. I'm sad to give up the best job in the world, but them's the breaks. <laughs> Please. Um, that's a, an actual quote from Boris Johnson's resignation speech. I had a feeling it was Boris. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, welcome to the Leftist Lit Podcast. I'm a host, Colin Orton Heave. With, with us is another host. Al Gropey, they, them, angry, greasy, fried over easy. And with us is our illustrious guest. Uh, Shane Ragland, audio editor, he, him, and resident bald man. Hey, I um, love an egg. Go ahead, We're Colin. doing resident egg. Today we are casting Think, the third part of Sebastian Younger's Freedom, ninth level. And we're... Um, <laughs> Uh, it sure is the news. There's been a judicial coup. Uh, Al. Oh, they're, they're, they've moved. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> some certain Supreme Court cases. There was an airplane. Shall we start off with the one that makes me the angriest? Please. <laughs> Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. If y'all haven't heard yet, in which case, God, I want to live in the blissfully ignorant world you live in. Um, SCOTUS ruled that state courts can now prosecute crimes committed by non-natives against natives on tribal land, where previously only federal courts could prosecute these uh, due to decades of precedent and respecting tribal tribal sovereignty. Uh, A lot of Republicans uh, are saying this is a good thing because it will be a, quote, deterrent to crime against native peoples. But actual Native Americans are upset because A, it is an insult to tribal sovereignty and decades of precedent. B, SCOTUS is also on reviewing the Indian Child Welfare Act. That is the language of the act. Like they, it still involves all this wrong terminology. So what's not, um, but if you're unaware, the ICWA was put in place to stop native children from being adopted off to random white people when they had relatives in their tribe that were willing to take them in. Um, and basically it just, it makes adoptions preferential within the tribe. Um, and so if you're saying that state courts can prosecute crimes in there in indigenous people's land, e- even if the act stands, now people that try and coerce, manipulate or abduct Indigenous children will be prosecuted by state courts instead of federal or tribal courts. And C, another reason this is shitty, there's already been discussion by officials, I believe Senate or House officials in Oklahoma, you know, the state with the most strident abortion ban in the country, um, that if any abortion centers were to open on Indigenous land, they would prosecute them with the full extent of state police, which under which before this law was passed would be impossible because only federal courts could prosecute on indigenous land. But if now basically indigenous land can be swarmed by state police investigating imaginary abortion clinics or abortion clinics that 
people on indigenous land had complete rights to set up, uh, there's just going to be state police tramping their boots all through native territory and all over tribal sovereignty. And all this while Ezra fucking Miller is <laughs> riding around the world with an 18 year old native girl they kidnapped. I've and- seen a lot of memes about how uh, Ezra Miller is actually a psyop um, designed <laughs> to discredit non binary people. Honestly, <laughs> we don't claim them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I respect their pronouns and nothing else about um, them. <laughs> yeah, those upcoming Flash movies are going to be a little difficult to make. Oh, um, speaking of things that are difficult, uh, the Supreme Court also announced that they're going to be hearing a case called Moore v. Harper, which is a, a fascinating case that sort of flies against previous Supreme Court precedent. Essentially, Gorsuch Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh have all endorsed something called independent state legislature doctrine, um, which essentially means it's the theory that only state legislatures have the ability to set election rules. So the Supreme Court could rule essentially in this case, and Barrett is the only conservative whose opinion we don't already know on this, but they could essentially rule that state legislatures are allowed are in fact the only governing bodies allowed to set rules in elections, even federal elections in the states. States' rights to do what? Commit voter fraud. (laughs) States' rights to do what, motherfucker? It essentially would allow uh, states, they cite, I think, Michigan in this Vox article, uh, which has a highly conservative legislature, but a Democratic uh, governor and Supreme Court. Uh, It would hamstring the ability of both the feds and the other branches of local governments to prevent gerrymandering, as well as essentially allow Republican run legislatures to be like, we're doing poll taxes again. Voter IDs. Uh, Now, whether or not they would actually do poll, poll taxes, I have no fucking idea. That was a random example I pulled out of my ass. Uh, actually read about it. That was me, uh, speaking in hyperbole, but I, uh, I, an article that I saw about it was from North Carolina, from like the Carolina Journal, which is a right wing news source. It was funny hearing them talk about it because they're like, the left will tell you that this will be an attack against voter rights. However, um, because in North Carolina, they have a Democratic uh, Supreme Court and a Republican state legislature. So the state legislature tried to submit two ridiculous, like, gerrymandering districting plans to the Supreme Court and both were rejected and then the Supreme Court eventually got to like pass their own um and so this law would that that's going to be the the current uh districting that the Supreme Court of North Carolina put in uh is going to remain for this year but if this passes in 2023 who fucking knows Yep. What's next on the docket? Is it fun? Is it funny? Do you have anything else? Um, I don't know who Shinzo Abe is, but y'all were talking about it before we started. Uh, he was it? a... Colin, do you think you have a better uh, descriptor of him as, as the former Japanese prime minister and also a man who was killed by a duct tape shotgun? Yeah, he, uh, that pretty much sums up the, the situation <laughs> was... Uh, the former prime minister of Japan was shot with a duct taped improvised shotgun. What? 
motives of the shooter as of yet are not totally clear. He what died. Part of, what? Well, I figured. What part of the gun was duct taped? Uh, it is covered it in duct tape. Yeah, yeah it, it's strapped together and almost like completely covered in duct tape. DIY assassination? Wild. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but, um, D- DIY firearms. Is it improper to say that I am not exactly sad that Shinzo Abe is dead? He, I don't know enough about him to really, uh, I know that he was like a war crimes denier. Yeah, he uh, worked to try to erase Japanese war crimes uh, from World War II from history. Uh, he was a right-wing nationalist. Also, he was one of those people that talked about, uh, I guess, population crisis and that, you know, in the way that it's like, oh, we need to make more babies. Things uh, to want population growth, that kind of guy. Yikes. I have two more things. Uh, Jalen Walker was killed by uh, Akron, Ohio police uh, last week. And, you know, it was really grisly. And I don't really, you know, need to get into the details of his, his murder because it's really fucked up. Yeah. But um, there have been, you know, riots and police brutality there uh, for the last week, like almost every night, 50, uh, over 50 people have been arrested by cops for basically nothing, including Jacob Blake's father and Brianna Taylor's aunt were arrested while protesting the police killing. Uh, Jesus. Oh, man. From, from Newsweek. Yeah. They can't catch a break. They, they went to go lead protests. Yeah. And the Akron PD fucking swarmed them. Yeah. The disrespect. Yeah. It's, it's really I mean, fucked. The police don't respect anybody, so. Mm. Especially yeah. not people who don't like them. I crave death. Well, not, not really. I shouldn't say that, but go ahead. You're the old blood. We have fan mail. Ah! Oh, fuck. Well, uh, uh, constructive criticism mail. Love that. So this comes from Wise Raven. Uh, and Wise Raven sent us, uh, he was listening to our, our recent episode and wanted to remind me and Shane specifically that pike and shot formations were also very useful against infantry. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the constructive criticism I was expecting. Uh, no, you no. Red um, bitch. <laughs> and uh, uh, Wise Raven and I also had some disagreements on how authoritarian uh, Genghis Khan was um, because apparently uh, Wise Raven brought up that the, the Khan was like less authoritarian than than some other uh rulers of the time i disagree to hair uh but the, yeah some interesting stuff um actually i from what i've heard i agree with wise raven more because like when y'all were talking about that last week i was like i don't know if i'm educated enough to respond but i've heard otherwise yeah different sliders on the on the scale different and, yeah. and it's hard to calculate truly how authoritarian it is when it's like the way that the the yeah, it's, it's so long ago, and also the way that that government was structured was so different from the other governments that we recognize today in, in terms of authoritarianism. Raven does bring up uh, that uh, the Khan was famously religiously tolerant, which is true. We had a great conversation about the, the lens connects. Yeah, thanks for, for reaching out, Wise Raven. All right, <laughs> let's move on to some freedom, shall we? All right. I would like to, I would like to be free from this mortal coil. <laughs> I really got to stop saying I wish for death so much because it's truly disrespectful to all those who deserved to live longer than they did under our current authoritarian police state. But you know what? That's where my brain goes. So, like, you know, one can only say what comes to mind. I, I gotta have that revolutionary that optimism. That's true. You're right, Miriam Kaba. 
I, I agree with revolutionary optimism and I understand your sentiment, Al, but also so you see when I have that thought of feeling bad about um, constantly saying that I crave death, the way I solve it is just, okay, but what if I say I crave death in sillier ways? <laughs> I crave death. <laughs> just. All right. Know. Let's talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this one, as we've discussed in earlier segments, he basically split this up into the three things you need to do in order to be free um, and survive against nature and against authoritarian regimes, like basically the balancing of freedom and community. And as we discussed, it is run, fight, think. I'll say this was, I think, my least favorite section of the three. Yeah, I think it had the least going on. Yeah, it kind of just it didn't. But there were parts that I really, really liked. I still think uh, the run part was my favorite. Yeah, I did start. Maybe out that's because I'm a coward. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of things about you, Shane. That is not one of them. Um, anyway, go for it out. Sure. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I, I will repeat my criticism from last week. I do think he could have organized his information in these chapters better. And this chapter, I feel only strengthens my belief of that. But there were a lot of good points that he had. Um, he mentions during the beginning that I have a quote here that basically explains how hunter-gatherer societies were inherently less uh, exploitative of their people, maybe is a good way to put it. The quote is, the great virtue of hunter-gatherer societies around the world was that although leaders understandably had more prestige than other people, they didn't have more rights. Uh, obviously, this can't be a generalization for all hunter-gatherer societies, but the ones that he cites uh, frequently do exhibit this. He also mentions how medieval kings, he basically uses this as a way to say, here's different ways societies have fucked this up or otherwise implemented it. <laughs> He talks about how medieval kings had to fight on the front lines, but then they stopped that after too many medieval kings died doing it. Have I uh, talked about uh, like Celtic kings specifically in and around like Stonehenge? No, but can I? It's I'm please, literally, please. I just want to like it's like this. It's um right after the quote because I also had that quote down. But he also talks about how um, for hunter gatherer societies, unlike. Uh, unlike European monarchs, they couldn't leverage their power to gain access to wealth and resources or outskirt the laws that govern everybody else. Uh, it's funny because, uh, and Colin, I do want to hear this point. No, yeah, I do too. In, and then I would love to hear about uh, Celtic kings, did you say? We'll, we'll discuss. Um, it's funny because he, he, in this discussion of, you know, more prestige versus more rights, he starts off by saying democracy kind of began this way, even though the wealthiest landowners were the ones who made the rules, they <laughs> at least tried to make it so they would have to follow the same rules. I, do we think that's happened today, y'all, in our democracy? What? No, never. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Our democracy was built to be an oligarchy. Uh, that was its the whole deal. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I will say, I think a lot of the points he makes in this chapter don't actually apply to modern day America. But Colin, I would love to learn about Scottish kings. Uh, well, so Celtic kings in Ireland, uh, bog bodies specifically uh, recovered in Ireland have uh, there's there's a prevailing theory as to why these dudes ended up in bogs, usually with the back of their heads caved in uh, by stone or wooden clubs. And that reason, as it turns out, is that many of these mummies were kings. The king was believed to be the conduit between man and the gods. And if there was, say, a bad crop, 
or a natural disaster or things going <laughs> poorly. It was, it was because, you know, the people believed that the gods were upset with them because they had instituted a poor conduit. So they bashed their king's fucking head in (laughs) and got a new one. That's like talk about leadership by the people. Am I right? That's like, um, like that's the only time I think I've ever felt sympathy for like a king where it's like, ah, shit, like winter came early. Oh no, (laughs) no, 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 no! Wait, wait, wait! Where's that groundhog? Oh Oh my god. It reminds me of the peasant revolts we read about in uh, Mutual Aid. Or mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there used to be, like he mentions in the chapter, and we read about in Mutual Aid, there used to be a physical threat to the ruling power if they weren't pulling their fucking weight, or in this case, if nature tended to be a little bit funky. And that is like one of the things with feudalism is it was pretty decentralized. Like a king relied really heavily on the landlords for support. And if you pissed off the landlords, they were actually the guys who controlled most of the money and soldiers. Right. It was the middlemen. So there was a pretty ruthless accountability mechanism uh, for kings (laughs) historically, which was um, if you displease the landlords, you will not be on the throne for very long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it feels like that in America too, but less so. Yeah. Oh, the petty bourgeois. <laughs> As he landlords. Oh, uh, speaking of capitalism, um, and feel free to bring it back to another point from earlier in the chapter if you want, but he does talk about the Gini coefficient for a while. And mm. I think he kind of, it's kind of a mask off moment for younger in that. I think he kind of outs himself as a, pretty typical capitalist and i would love to know whether you agree or disagree okay um so if you're unaware for the listener the genie coefficient uh i have to find the full name of the guy but it was named after the creator of the concept is basically on a scale from zero to one who controls the most resources in a society Uh, one means that all resources are accumulated under one power usually the state power or select few individuals a zero means that resources are completely equally distributed and younger says quote neither brackets mine a high coefficient nor a low coefficient are desirable Moderate differences in income motivate people because they have a reasonable chance of bettering their circumstances and extreme differences discourage people because their efforts look futile. That first part of the quote, moderate differences in income motivate people, is basically just saying like the American dream, I can rise up the ranks, and we've disproven that. I mean, yes, but also, like, regardless of how, how possible it is to actually rise up the ranks, if there is a, you know, robust and healthy, like, middle class, mm. you, you get those social, you know, that, that, that uh, the, the hamster wheel of social climbing does, I would say, motivate people regardless of how possible social mobility actually is within an economic model. I would agree. But consider that it is possible perhaps in a society with a Gini coefficient of zero. He even mentions immediately after this, that one of the most free societies, the Hadza are free within themselves, you know, most equitable societies to live in the hunter gatherer society, the Hadza has a Gini coefficient of 0.25, one of the lowest ever. 
And he says himself that the lower the coefficient is to zero, the more free the people are. Could not there be a society with a Gini coefficient of zero where the need to better one's circumstances wouldn't be felt by the public? Like if everyone's needs are taken care of and if we're in that like Marxist future where everything is automated and people are free to pursue leisure, like why would anyone feel that need? In an ideal society, no one would be trying to better their circumstances because they'd be perfectly content. That's the luxury gay space communism. Yeah, like I think Younger's point does buy into a little of the, the capitalism handbook. I wouldn't label him an out and out, you know, capitalist, capitalist, but I would, I would definitely say like, based on that quote, he might, you know, subscribe to that ideology a hair. I just, I think it's a little narrow of Jünger's perspective to think that the only possible motivation one could have to do something would be to better their circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I agree. And I agree to um, to a certain degree on that front. I really don't like using the imaginary uh, luxury automated space communism. I think partly just it's the imagining of a, of a hypothetical far off in the future versus the things that we, that we can see and, and, have, ev- and have evidence for right now. Let's talk about a real world example then. Um, communes that function currently in upstate New York. Or, oh, yeah. where- or Java or... Oh yeah, communes are great. The uh, Zapatistas I mean, in you know, Chiapas. Not all of them are perfect, just like not all unions are perfect, but like, yeah, they're great. Maybe uh, I was also just put off because he kind of uses a dog whistle in a sentence after that. Oh, <laughs> Immediately after this, he says, the United States has one of the highest Gini coefficients of the developed world, 0.42, which puts it at roughly the level of ancient Rome. And <laughs> we know what happened to Rome. Uh, then he says, before taxes, the American Gini coefficient is even higher, almost 0.6 which is on par with deeply corrupt countries like Haiti, Namibia, and Botswana. Whoa, that's basically the third world dog whistle. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate, like... We know why those countries exist uh, the way they do now. It's, Colonialism. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a neglected yeah, context. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, is, it is really effective context because, like, on, yeah, on a technical level, those countries are example of those high Gini coefficients. But I, it, I think going back to what you, one of your points earlier is that one of the problems with this book is that there are points where he, uh, the way he sets up the context for things doesn't fully explain the ramifications or understandings for why. Like when you're talking about like, the, like in the last episode with um, the way he talks about native tribes and, and right here, it's, I don't, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a, as a full dog whistle. It mostly because focused on another point, he doesn't bring up the context of why those countries are like that. Yeah, I would say um, definitely at least adjacent to the third world dog whistle. Right. But I would, I would definitely say imperialist standard nomenclature used in academia uh, that is not, you know, fully examined for its imperialist overtones. Right. Yeah, I, okay. I'd say that's a great way to put it. I think the, the, the fact that he's using it Basically, as that there are examples of there are more examples of how bad the U.S. is. It, 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 I think that's part of why I'm a bit more charitable to it being less of a dog whistle is that he yeah. is using it to criticize the higher power by naming off these countries that have suffered under colonialism and thus became corrupt. Even if he doesn't bring up the context, unfortunately, which, it, yeah, it does suck. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I buy that. Uh, shall we trap forward or does anyone else have any points on the genie coefficient section? And um, that's all uh, you guys. Oh yeah, I, got, I got some uh, one. He also mentions that America's wealth gap um, between the poorest and richest families has doubled since 1989. I love living in the post Reagan hell. <laughs> we all have Reagan. The doom guy going into hell and all these. Where is Ronald Reagan? Reagan. Reagan. But uh, he also mentions that countries with the largest income disparities are among the most powerful and wealthy in the world, perhaps because they can protect themselves with robust economies and huge militaries. They're just not very free. Again, going back to those uh, tyrannical weapons. He makes a really interesting point, too, that the, the unfreeness of the population is not necessarily what leads to the instability that destroys these societies either. Because they're actually pretty stable on their own. It's a, it's a contributing factor, but it usually requires several other factors, i.e. the Black Death. Uh, cataclysms. Cataclysms. cataclysms uh, to, to create instability large enough to actually do lasting damage to these fairly robust systems. What did Marx call those? Manufactured crises or something? I, I, I wouldn't really call the... The Black Plague on Manufactured Crisis. No, no, no. I'm saying, well, I was thinking about, about the point you're specifically thinking. I thought it was, he does say that he kind of doesn't mention Marx, but mentions a Marxian theory and then says, no, it doesn't happen. Where he talks about how we would love to believe that this, like you said, this economic instability would eventually lead to the d- destruction of the society. I will also say, Al, uh, to jump off of what you said, Younger, I think is very useful as a tool for dragging, especially ex-military guys, but uh, dragging like outdoorsy dudes to the left. Yeah. I would uh, say that this is less, it's not, it's less like a theory or like a, it's less a text. I would even say for like liberals to move them le- left or for anything like that. I think it's almost specifically targeted to a speci- to that demographic of like outdoorsy ex-military, possibly, or possibly very conservative. And basically, it seems like it's more trying to turn libertarians into anarchists. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I can definitely see he is speaking to his base. <laughs> right. He, like, he has a certain base that he's, like, aiming at. And that's prob- like, partly because maybe that's, like, an environment he grew up in or whatever. I'm not going to read into his human, into his human life. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. There, a couple of my critiques towards the end of the section are possibly originating from the fact that I feel he is speaking so strongly to his base that he kind of neglects something. to what we imagine his right. base to be yeah and, yeah and it's yeah. also like even though he's not necessarily like a theorist it's almost like pop political theory in a lot of ways um just like you know there's all those pop science books analyze he gives his analysis and describes his beliefs and his understandings of things in a very in a way that is simple but also and it's it's mainly targeted at like you know almost like a mainstream audience who without like other theory knowledge or other things would have a hard time arguing against. No. Yeah. I, I get that. I just, I mean, isn't it our job to, yes, it is. It is. And I, I totally agree. I was just apologizing. No, I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just saying if that, that being the case, I still, there doesn't mean we can't critique Um, it. Oh yeah. No, totally. I was, I I guess it might be a little bit of apologism to, to a degree. I was just, like understanding who they're aiming for is pretty critical in how we critique them. Al, I believe you had some thoughts uh, regarding Younger's commentary on the role of women 
in revolu- women and femmes in revolutions, specifically in the Easter Rising. Boy, do I. Well, uh, <laughs> all right, I'll I'm buckling in. Yeah, I'll start with I'll start with the the thing that I think is good from the section on the Easter Rising. Um, for the listener who may not have read yet, he does discuss the Easter Rising in Ireland during, I believe, 1919, 1918, 1919. This was the prelude to the Irish War of Independence. Shane is pumping his fist excitedly. Uh, I'm Irish. What could you want from me? <laughs> Of course. No, I get it. I'm a little. (laughs) Um, I have a quote here that I think. So most of this think chapter is about, you know, tactics, strategy, motivation. And within that, I think this really speaks to something he doesn't talk about as much. Here's the quote. The failed violence of the Easter Rising turned out to be a prelude to a much longer fight for independence. At first, the Irish public was furious at the destruction caused by the rebels, but as stories about the executed men began to circulate, poet and playwright Thomas McDonough was said to have whistled his way down the prison staircase, the essential unfairness of the proceedings began to arouse deep disgust. Uh, Second quote, in the long run, early failure is probably just as great a generator of freedom as early success. Um, This is just, you know, how making martyrs out of those lost or how looking back on a, there's a plane, I don't know if you can hear it, how looking back on a conflict that one may not even have won actually results in greater long-term inspiration or morale, the think being hope and motivation just as much as battle tactics and organizing. But then he goes into the role of women. Okay, there was one quote that I underlined and sent to Colin because it was sent to the group chat because I just thought it was so narrow, I guess. He says at one point, for better or for worse, historically, women's survival has been higher valued than men's. And he says this, I, I read it later, and he says this basically to imply that back in the day, people were less likely to shoot a group of women than they were to shoot a group of men. Uh, he mentions one specific instance where a woman was captured and uh, she was going to be killed and they literally couldn't do it because England was afraid it was it would incite an international like response. Right. There but, was also um, I'll let you go. But there's also the quote where a policeman said, um, who, you know, kind of like a riot cop basically said one policeman can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 policemen to handle one woman. There was that quote. Yeah. And Matt respected that. Like, I feel it. Um, but he basically says, well, first of all, women's lives weren't valued. Their survival was only, he doesn't say this. I say this women's lives weren't valued. Their survival was valued because they were cast as a breeding force and a pedestal placed upon moral force. And I don't think either of those are as respected in modern society as they were back in, back in the day. I, uh, have you ever heard of the price sisters? Didn't we talk about them a little at some point? Uh, I think we we have. Um, the the Price sisters worked for the IRA uh, in I, the eighties. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the book "Say Nothing" has a lot about them. Highly recommend it. Anyway, um, I think this short tangent ties back in. It's the the multifaceted systems of oppression leveled at women can at times be utilized to the advantages, uh, the advantages of the causes these women are fighting for. Right. For example, the Price sisters would smuggle handguns into Northern Ireland past British checkpoints. Uh, and they talked about jokingly, but they talked about how they got away with it was by wearing short skirts 
so that the British soldiers would be too busy leering at them to actually check them for weapons. Uh, <laughs> and I'm all for that. Yeah, the, I think, yeah, I think there was a, uh, um, yeah, there was a part in that when where he says like they are underestimated in ways that which can be exploited. And I agree with that from a historical standpoint. Like, yes, women were traditionally like women have been spies for a long time because mm-hmm. people were didn't expect them to be. And we've talked the book talks a lot about women being healers and even the troops of indigenous women that were their own fighting corps. But I don't think that this point and he, he avoids talking about women for so much of the book, except to compare their physical abilities to men's. Or to like just say where they were, or how well they could keep up with the men that when he finally takes like a solid three pages to talk about women, it's only in ways that I don't think apply as much in a modern context, particularly because if we're thinking about this in the context of exploited and oppressed peoples in the U.S. today, the right in particular's perception of women falls along this trad wife versus degenerate liberal slut dichotomy um Mm. apologies for the word but also i've had that called to me so (laughs) but like women aren't placed on that pedestal of morality anymore and women's like position as a breeding force has is not like beneficial to them anymore in a way that can be exploited for the cause in fact it's most of the time used against them see the roe v wade overturn right there are it also does depend um very still on the on which country and which part of the world yeah i guess um, uh, colin you had something to say go for it out go for it well yeah and we and he talks a little bit about the mine wars and well he doesn't talk about the mine wars he talks about the mill strikes and the steel strikes but we actually read a little bit about those in when we read the mine wars in 19 19 something um, it's been a minute um, and we read about Mother Jones and he talks about a famous female reporter that was like interviewing all the women that were in such positions of power for these strikes that were so relied upon. Well, not positions of power, but were so relied upon by the strikers. And, and some of them were in positions of power. Oh, yeah, this is true. Thank you very much. But people like Mother Jones were inspirational figures who could give speeches. We can't even unite the working class anymore because half of them don't know or won't accept they're being exploited. And if anyone speaks out against it, half of the working or working poor or working class is more likely to call them a snowflake. I will Um, also say that our COINTEL Pro did incredible fucking damage to the left, like existing union infrastructure, uh, the ability to organize, like it is not the individual fault. people you know it's not like you know it's it's not because poor people are stupid no no it's the the abandonment of any kind of class politics by the democratic party uh the active sabotage of any kind of labor rights by the government Mm -hmm. propaganda for 50 years the red scare Oh, yeah. And robber barons again, you know, Robert. But mm. we are seeing massive class consciousness actually working in the uh, American working class, like right fucking now. Yeah, it is like actually I, coming back. Like, I think I think that things have started to get back. Anyway, Al, I'm, I'm I, I digress, but I think 
uh, you were being a little unfair to the American working class. You're right. No, you're right. I'll accept that. Uh, I can't, I mean, I don't blame anyone in particular and I am probably being a little bit harsh to the American working class. I just, I think the fact that he placed his portion on women in the think chapter under this label of women as a motivating inspirational force whose unassumingness could be used to the advantage of the movements they fought for. It just doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't read well. Yeah, that doesn't read well. I do think there was the other point he made where that um, broadly across cultures, but especially like, you know, in that, in like, what is the steelworker strike or the Irish resistance? um, He talks about how then he talks about how women's belief in the public nature of individual misfortune and how they emphasize the connectiveness of individual lives in ways that serve to unify disparate groups. Like, and men are also kind of raised to be pretty individualistic. And that's not even a recent thing. That's pretty, I, I structured my argument backwards. I'm sorry. But um, because of how strongly they felt about their beliefs and the way that they emphasized collectiveness over a lot of men who would kind of just run in on their own, helped to, help to really unify those movements to actually succeed. Colin, I, don't, you something? I don't remember who it was um, because I uh, have a really bad case of slow brain. At the moment, but um, there's some quote that I read a while ago that talked about, you know, how no working class movement has legs without the support of women. Mm-hmm. Not only because they are approximately half the population, right. but, <laughs> uh, but I, Al, I think I'm, and I hadn't thought about it because the whole AMAB thing, but uh I definitely didn't think about it, but I, I see how like women being mentioned a couple times and then being brought up as like, oh yeah, extremely useful for um, uh, morale. Yeah. At the end. Can, yeah, can I, I agree. I as, definitely as, agree. As demeaning. Uh, I definitely see. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I am not arguing with that at all. Um, I definitely agree. It, this yeah. book is definitely written by a man, by a man. Uh, and, unless, he, and unless he is plural, I don't know if he's Sebastian's younger. Um, Al, I believe uh, you also had a point. Speaking of of yeah, there's one more point I think we have on our on our list uh, that, that you put forward. And My, I, I this can be the. I mean, th- there's got to be. Does anyone else have anything else before I get into this? Because this is completely a me thing. This is my. Uh, what it, what is it? Just. Yeah. No, it's about the very last page. It's about the very end of the book. Oh, the oh the okay. Is that what we do? We want to end on that, or do we want to? I think we'll do that, and then have a a sort of like a couple sentences from each of us, like notes on the whole. So at the end of the book, we finally find out why he is on this journey in the first place. He's running from his divorce. Hey, <laughs> we've all he and one of the other guys. Yeah, and one of the other guys. That was the funny part. And they didn't talk about it the whole time because, pardon the sweeping generalization, but manly men apparently, even when they're alone together from, in the woods, for I weeks. mean, they were. I mean, one of the the first book is titled "Run." They were running from yeah from their emotions. I'll say, obviously, everyone on this trip is running from something. But hearing after all of this 
beautiful exposition after all of these ideas he's pulling together hearing that the whole fucking reason he's out there is because he doesn't want to face his incoming divorce cheapened so much of it for me you talk about how all these ideas about freedom versus community and how people can work together in the face of struggle and you won't talk to your wife like what the fuck? I mean, I won't pretend to understand. Maybe, maybe it is a really bad marriage. Maybe it is a really bad marriage. I don't know. Maybe, but, but I don't like, know his situation. But it is maybe funny. he. Maybe he was like that one guy who tried to get out of the car and the and That's his girlfriend ex- was like, "No." Nope. I thought about that anecdote. Hearing that, I was like, I was always like, why does he have so many of these things about, you know, this teenage girl locked her door as we were walking past or this guy's wife pulled him back into the car. Uh, I mean, like a lot of the analogies and the anecdotes I loved, obviously, we talked about them last time. I just wish this book could have been what it was before that last page. I would rather have not known that he was fleeing his incoming divorce because it, and maybe I am. I will admit I am less sympathetic to the sad man who has to discover himself narrative. I've read a lot of them. I've read a lot for college curriculums. I'm kind of tired of the men finding themselves story. I wish this could have just been what it was, which was this beautiful investigation of freedom versus community. And I I guess it still is. But I think it's, I think it still is, but also, I mean, I understand uh, Sebastian Younger's uh, like feeling the need to actually, you know, at the end, explain why he went on in the first place. Fair. Colin, you had something? Oh, I, uh, uh, not to j- jump on you, but I think, I think it's more about freedom versus centralization and freedom versus power than necessarily freedom versus community. But I also, you know, sometimes... Sometimes uh, fellas be getting divorced. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, I, go for it. No, you, no, you finish it. I if you feel like you need to go on a, a weird, almost paramilitary journey down a historic river with you and the homies, uh, trespassing all the way, that's cooler than a lot of divorces that I've seen. Yeah, but- yeah, like, there, that's, there are that's, worse ways to handle it. That's way less harmful than well, a lot of ways I've seen men handle divorce. So you know yeah. what? I'm cheap. Uh, <laughs> more power to you. Like, like, yeah. is it a bit of like that? You know, at this point, it's almost become fucking corny of the the intellectual man going on a journey of self discovery or like to, to learn about other things to escape my wife. Um, is that is that pretty corny? And yeah, but also, I mean, also, I guess. It's it, it speaks more about Sebastian Younger than I think the than about the book. Yeah, I think for me, what it almost that ending almost came off as like a, what it almost came off as a joke is that part of it does play into that trope of like the men not knowing how to handle those things. But specifically, he's like, oh yeah, ex-military. Like he's like, I have faced down as about as terrifying situations as any human being can, but. I, I, I'm running away from this thing. But God forbid I talk to my soon-to-be ex-wife. Wife. I mean, I mean, maybe it is one of those things with uh, maybe it's one of those times in his divorce where they need space, and he's like, "Fine, I'm just gonna go." Yeah. But I don't know what the situation is. I don't care. Yeah, um, it's it's not my fucking problem. Yeah. I mean, I guess we always knew it was a midlife crisis of some kind. He's, yeah, he's fifty. It's it's gonna happen. <laughs> 
There's only one reason for a man who, at least at the beginning of the book, yeah, he said it was on 50, um, is going to go on a hike that that long. Um, With a bunch of his friends where they don't like talk to each other all day. Yeah. And that is, they got, they're running away from something. Yeah, I guess. Life crisis. You know, there's a lot of media about men going on walks. Uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, I have been, me and my roommate have very different opinions on that movie because he loves it. And I, was I like, like the, the short story, personally. The short story was more fun. Um, I haven't read the short story. Also, J.R. Tolkien, that's, that's where, what he would always do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Look, dudes it's just like the walk. from my personal dudes bias. Be walking. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm just glad. Okay. I was honestly thrilled when he said, uh, this is my divorce, that he hadn't mentioned his wife at all. Yeah. I because will say that. there have been plenty of books about men wandering in the wilderness and having thoughts that are them just being like, you know, in some, in all societies, you must sacrifice uh, freedom for the centralization of power. That's what my bitch wife did when she. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm yeah, thrilled I, that we didn't have to deal with any of that. Like, and I do, I do appreciate that he does like respect her privacy to to a specific <laughs> degree. In that, like, yeah, he never mentions her at all, and. Or I guess ex-wife now, but like doesn't say her name or anything. It's just I'm going through a divorce, and he kind of leaves her out of it, and which mm-hmm. I guess is another instance of him leaving women out of the book, or like or like only having them in an, in an awkward situation. Awkward. No, I think that's a good time to leave someone out of the book. I, I, I think it's a good time. I, I, like, I can respect that. <laughs> when she's divorcing you, yeah, maybe don't put her in your book. Yeah, um, dog. Yeah. Um. You you've you've convinced me. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I didn't mind it that much. It, it is just, funny. It was funny. It's almost cliche. Yeah, it is cliche. Yes. It, it was funny. That's um, what I, my initial reaction was, oh my God, another one. Um, but it still is a beautiful work regardless. Um, look, I'll be honest. If I was going through a divorce, I'd probably just go on a long walk too. <laughs> a nihilism versus hedonism. You would go on a long I'm walk. Not, I would go on a long bender. I'm not, a, I'm not a nihilist. I'm an absurdist. Okay, yes, my apologies. Intentionally engaging in cliche because at this point it's funny. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm an absurdist in that basically, at least to me, absurdism is kind of like it's this weird impasse between existential and nihilism, existentialism and nihilism, where it's like, yes, mean there is no inherent meaning in anything. Um, yes, everything I everything I do, you know, there's there's no inherent meaning in any of it. It's all futile. I'm just gonna die. But fuck you, I'm built different. <laughs> Um, that's, that's, that's absurdism is really like it's you agree that everything is futile and there's no reason to do anything but I want to be nice to people because I fucking feel like it fuck you <laughs> yeah uh, so Shane I think you have a couple bullet points of uh, yes. things things you liked and, and this will um, be the start of our, of our general thoughts and, thoughts and feels recap before we disappear into the aether right, um, I want to talk a lot about uh there's a, there's a section where he talks about opportunists and then moves into the hunter-gatherer section of that. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. we re- I w- really, that was really important to me in this, where he says, basically, in any society, leaders who aren't willing to make sacrifices aren't leaders, they're opportunists. And then later, wealthy nations might survive that kind of leadership, but insurgencies and uprisings probably won't. Their margins simply aren't big enough. But uh, I think it's important because it also comes back to, I believe it was uh, the Bastard Manifesto, where yeah. he talks about, I don't know, remember if it's the same specific tribe, but hunter-gatherer societies are, genu- are generally spared opportunistic leadership because the gap between rich and poor is so small. Um, 
but as soon as but he talks about how that comes about with as soon as resources can become monopolized hunter gatherers um become hunter gatherer societies become just as unfair and stratified as everyone else yeah but uh and how like food surplus and other resource surpluses sociologically um inevitably lead to political inequality and also vice versa um it, there so there's something about like having more than you need in any moment is the creation of inequality further further down he talks about how in egalit- in the more egalitarian hunter gatherer societies skilled hunters are not held in high esteem because um even though they depend on their skill to even though the, the whole tribe depends on their skill to survive but uh it's because they know the dangers of pride and ego in destabilizing the group a hunter who's killed a large animal is expected to show restraint and there are some hunter gatherer societies where if they gloat or they do take pride in it they are shamed and the, and their kill is shamed. And, uh, they'll call his meat bad. Um, I the shaming love, of the meat. I don't, oh, sorry. Go one more time. I want to hear that one more oh, it's, time. It's the shaming of the meat. Go for yeah. it, Al. Well, I just also want to say I did love that section where he was like, you let the blood on your arrow shaft speak for you. Right. Yeah, that, one, that line was pretty sick. But I think that, but there was something important. And I think it's a really, he, he doesn't get to touch on it too much. But that, that part where the ways in which these egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies, even, even if they don't have that much of a disparity in power and resources, the, the ways in which they culturally force and uh, almost police ego is an incredibly important part in how they not only survive, but maintain their egalitarianism. Because, uh, and that's what I'm connecting to the tribe that Robert Evans talks about in his episode, uh, The Bastard Manifesto, which I, I can't remember what it's called right off the top of my head. I'm so sorry, but you know, it's same same thing happened where you know a young twenty something man went on a hunt, went for the biggest, went for the biggest kill because he's a, a young man. That's just it's it's a young man thing. You it's know, a he, young man thing. It's you know testing the waters, trying to you know building an ego as 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 young men do, and his meat was shamed, which is very funny, but um. Uh, the person who was there with the society, the the American who was there, like to, to document and understand, um, he talked to one of the the female leaders, and sh- she said, "Well, you know, there's several reasons. One, because you know, going after the biggest kill is stupid. It's it's uh, it's an unnecessary risk just for your pride. So you should be shamed for that alone. Because it's like, all right, you if you get hurt or injured, like the way that that snowballs." Additional you, resources it, have to be delegated. If you or if you die, then just how much everything else, the way that that spreads everyone else even more thin. But also, if if you let it, them hold their pride and think that they're better than than someone else, once they get that in their head, given a couple of years, the tribe could be fucking dead. Because like the the way that the building up that ego can lead to someone seizing power, and the fact that a lot of these societies are old enough that they have stories of. Hey, this happened before. Don't let it happen again. Yeah, I guess I, I guess that was all my, my whole point. But I thought that was a really important part of this text because a lot of a lot of the, the think section is about th- like how ideas of resistance and how people like say like like the Irish Irish rebellion from the British or in thinking about how, like how they succeeded and what things happened that allowed them to. It's a lot about that, but it's also that's an important lesson in in stabilizing egalitarian societies which is absolutely the, which is the hardest part for us as a, in a as in a very capitalist 
world right now that not only because we're alienated from the means of production, but also because our alienation from each other leads us all to be more individual, more individualistic. It's, it's ingrained in us from an early age. That form of, uh, I guess, regulation and st- st- uh, stabilization that those egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies, I guess, I guess, utilized to survive is incredibly important and also would probably be very helpful to resisting individualistic, overwhelming people Ideology. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, good, good picks. All. Al, you got any picks? You want to go first? I, I have more just like general thoughts on the book as a whole. Um, I mean, the stuff we've, we've already talked about a little bit. Um, my big takeaway from the book, uh, or one of them was uh, with the opportunistic leaders thing. Uh, this book has some downright revolutionary rhetoric in it in the oh, sense yeah. of opportunistic leaders and that the most or like one of the most important elements of humanity, not just biologically, but culturally is that they are capable of waging and winning asymmetrical conflicts. There's two quotes right after each other at the end of book two, if all uprisings and insurgencies were easily crushed, there would be no possibility for political change or freedom in the world. Freedom is due in part to the fact that powerful nations do not always win wars and powerful men do not always win fights. In fact, as often as not, they lose. It is not just imperative that certain powerful people lose that power, but justice is the friend of power is something that people have in them, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not they have a state apparatus built around them. And at the end of the day, two people are just two people, regardless of the size of the crown that one of them wears. I thought that was a, yeah. Oh yes, man. I'm trying, I'm trying my best not to fed post. Right. Uh, uh, and say, say shit that is like, you know, direct threats to government officials. Um, I, but I think also the point, uh, he'd also make in three, but I think it's a really important part, part throughout the whole book, which is he talks about how, while most people will defend their families without a second thought, Dying for an idea usually requires giving ordinary people an extraordinary sense of purpose. Yeah. And that unfair hierarchies destroy motivation, just like how we see now. Like we're all, we, as much as we want to be revolution, like be revolutionary optimists, we're all kind of doomers. Um, motivation is not exactly at a high point right now. We, we, we might try, but we, we all have bad days. But yeah. uh, unfair hi- hierarchies destroy motivation. And motivation is the one thing that underdogs must have more than anyone, everybody else. Al, any, any big takeaways? Yeah, well, as someone who is solidly not a member of this man's base, uh, I obviously had my qualms with the way things were structured, the way things were mm-hmm. phrased. But I did, I did still enjoy the book as a whole. I did think that it had a lot of uh, points to make about... As you said, Colin, freedom versus consolidation of power, or however you, um, how did you put that? You know, something like that. Centralized power, I think, is what you said. Something along those lines. Um, but I still, I don't, I still took so much of it from community and like from the ways in which people need to rely on each other and to the point you were making, Shane, like how an individualist mindset is toxic to a functioning community that is free 
at the highest level it can be. It is also an individualistic mindset is to the benefit of the oppressor. Yeah. Big because, time. And then, yeah, same sort of thing with family units. Like, I mean, he doesn't talk about it as much because he actually mentions that, you know, he mentions family units in a way where, oh, in societies where power is consolidated, where resources are consolidated, uh, family units are like beholden to the people can be free within family units and under other societies, even if he talks about the roles of women and like, yeah, women would serve subordinate roles, but within their family units, they were somewhat respected. But one thing that we, that I've seen a lot of people talk about recently is the idea that you only need to look out for your family unit rather than your whole community is detrimental in the same sort of way as individualism. And, and it, pl- it plays right into the capitalist's hands too. Yes. That's what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Just full takeaways is that obviously one must exchange certain freedoms for certain protections. Uh, I still think my favorite chapter was chapter one because he really sets up the arguments and makes throughout the book. Um, and I see the most, the things that grabbed my attention the most were in chapter one. I do think this is, as you said, um, a guide for libertarians to go more to the left it definitely does attack that idea of like, well, not attack, but it addresses that idea of I want to be free. Uh, I want to do yeah. what I want to do. And, no one can and he's like, me. you know what real freedom is? And yeah. But it's like, yeah. What is real freedom and how, how could it function in a society where now we have so much reliance on not only systems of power, but systems, economic systems to get things like medicine, to get things like small machine parts, like cars, like gasoline. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I did like the book as a whole. I would recommend it to my father. Um, I have recommended it already to my boyfriend, but uh, he has heard all of my critiques as well. I called him today to rant about the divorce thing. (laughs) Um, I do think this is a good book for any of I it's the same sort of person that I would recommend. What was one of the books we read? I, I wouldn't recommend this to the kind of person that I would recommend end of policing too, but I would recommend it to the kind of person I would recommend making sense of the alt-right to, if that makes any sense. Right. It's kind of like an intro and it's very, and also it helps that it's very short. It's just like a. Helps that it's short, helps that it is beautifully written. I'm not denying that. Oh yeah. So much beautiful descriptive language. Yeah. Again, one of the first books about dudes wandering around in the forest that I actually really liked. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> well, Shane, I uh, got any pluggables? My name is Shane Ragland. Uh, he, him, uh, audio editor and painter by my art. My Instagram is at ifreewilly. My Twitter, if you want to, I don't know, be scared, is at i, is at I underscore freewilly. Yeah. Who have y'all been? Al? Me? But I am but a mosquito. Um, I'm Al Gropey, they, them. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Al Gropey. You can uh, go on my actor website, which I'm going to edit because I made it. And now I think it looks like shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I know the feeling. Yeah, it's something complicated like Al Gropey 13 at Wix or something. But I'm going to buy my own domain because it's only $12. Um, oh, fuck you. Why would I try to buy my own domain? It was 70. 
Jesus, what's our name? No, I just didn't. <laughs> Shit. Well, if it's just your name, like no one cares apparently. Um, Google domains. You got to get a Google domain. It's, it's amazing um, how much adding art to the end actually raises the price. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Uh, but that's it. Colin, who have you been? I've been Colin Orton, he, they, uh, hate mail at gettinginformedpod at gmail.com. Follow this podcast at Leftist Lip Pod on Twitter. Other stuff. All right. That's it. I love you all. Best of luck. Solidarity.